Hello, you're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work, life and everything in between. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this week's episode, I'm in conversation with Francis Bryars. Francis is a fellow Brightonian. He's a client lead at FizzPop Bang. So he has a lot to say about culture in organisations. He's also the founder of Wise Fool School and an interfaith minister. So we talk wisdom and faith and all sorts of stuff, um, as well as productivity. And he's someone who's done 494 consecutive weekly emails. So just in terms of consistency of output and productivity, um, he's got loads to say, loads of great tips. So I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Before we get into it, just wanted to talk to you about my new program that I'm running in November. It's called Six Weeks to Ninja. It's um, You can find out details at grahamalcott.com and it's basically a six-week evening course where I'm going to take everyone through all the tips and tricks and key habits from how to be a productivity ninja. So if you're a fan of productivity ninja, if you've done some work with Think Productive, my company before, uh, you'll know how this stuff can really change your life actually, you know, and really just give you the the kind of backbone habits that will really up your game in terms of productivity. So if that's at all of interest, go to graymalcott.com. You should see a little pop-up come up on there with some more information about six weeks to ninja. Uh, there's also an Eventbrite page. So if you just go to uh, Eventbrite and type in six weeks to ninja, you'll find it. And it's really limited. So we're just going to do it for, we're going to sell 30 tickets. And so it's going to be a, a fairly small and intimate little gathering of people. WhatsApp group to keep everyone accountable um, through the weeks as well. And uh, starting in November. So if that is of interest, Thursday evenings, UK time um, through November through to Christmas, uh, then uh, go up to Six Weeks to Ninja on the Eventbrite page or on graymalcott.com to find out more. So let's get into this conversation. So as I say, Francis, just really interesting guy. Uh, you know, we talk wisdom, faith, productivity, embodiment, all sorts of stuff in this episode. Um, we're down the line, even though we're both in the same city recording this. It was uh, recorded a few weeks ago when there was still um, some some fairly strong restrictions in place about meeting. It just didn't feel like the right thing to do. So um, I'm looking forward to having a, a proper coffee and catch up with Francis when... Um, uh, that feels like a bit more of a normal thing to do. Um, but let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Francis Bryars. I'm here with Francis Bryars. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to the conversation. And I was just saying before we um, hit record that um, often if I'm in an office or something, then uh, that is our starting point. But uh, maybe we're doing this down the line on Zencaster. Uh, maybe just uh tell us a little bit about what has your day looked like so far where are you what have you been doing yeah so i'm at home like most of us right now um still on the on the end of lockdown so i don't know when this will be published but uh we may be a little more out in the world by then but it's um yeah certainly mostly people still at home right now uh so i'm in a little box room where i've been working um and i did a, a great coaching session earlier today which i really enjoyed fascinating conversation and um was doing a bit of homeschooling with my son this morning um yeah so a rich and varied friday friday morning so far props to you for still doing homeschooling because it feels like everyone else i speak to just gave up like weeks ago right? <laughs> how's that been for you yeah <clears throat> well I've, I've not been doing the bulk of it my wife 
has been doing more of it than me. So, um, but because I don't do my day job on Fridays, I usually do the homeschooling on Fridays. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been a funny mix of the moments of really feeling like it gives me a real window into my son's process as a learner, which I don't normally have because he's normally doing his, the majority of his learning at school, um, which feels really useful and actually really great to, to see and be part of. Um, and sometimes really joyful and playful as well, um, especially with English because I'm, I'm a writer. So I, I enjoy kind of helping him uh, open up his imagination and find ideas and, and get them down on paper, which he sometimes struggles with, but but can really get into the swing of too. Um, and then sometimes horribly painful. Um, so you know, just <laughs> those moments when um, he really doesn't want to do it and we really need to get it done and he's just kicking off in one way or another. And um, especially on a Friday, because he's often tired, you know, it's, I think it's been quite tiring for our little people. Yeah. Um, having yeah. to kind of motivate themselves and keep, you know, find things to do. And yeah, I think it's, it's a very strange time for all of us, but my, my son's an only child. So he's not, he, he's had very little social contact that hasn't been online for months now. Um, and actually that's pretty tough. And, 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 uh, you know, he's doing, doing amazingly in lots of ways. And, and some days that shows up as a, obliquely it's not he's not complaining about that or talking about that but he'll he'll be uh, upset or or frustrated and it's not really about the work it's about it's about that wider context so yeah um yeah it's been it's it's a it's a a wild wild tapestry to be exploring but um but great to be hanging out with him in that space too yeah it's a good um reminder isn't it that um things like covid and and it, and obviously everything else that's going on in the world as well right there's there's a huge amount of stuff in flux trauma lots lots of things like that that people are experiencing emotionally that um because we're having to just get on with it or in cases of homeschooling you know invent a whole new job for yourself and and all these yeah. other things it's like it can sometimes be forgotten that um, that's all happening emotionally whilst we try and muddle through everything as well. Right. So it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting time. Um, you, so you just talked about there about your day job. So you don't do that on Fridays. Is that for Fizz Pop Bang? Is that, yeah, that's is right. That what you describe as the day job? Cause it feels like you have lots of jobs, right? You have lots <laughs> of different hats and stuff. Um, so let's just talk about, uh, just to give, people a sense of context of some of the things you're involved with so do you want to just talk about fizz pop bang and then um Mm. and then we'll kind of lead into some of the other the other hats that you wear as well yeah sure so um yeah my what i call my my day job uh, i feel like that term makes it sound more boring than it is or you know (laughs) less less like something i love than it really is um is with a a little boutique consultancy creative consultancy called uh fizz pop bang uh and we do culture work generally so working with companies to help them create a a really great sense of relationship and integrity between their brand and their employee experience so i I see a lot of it's one one of my bugbears over the years in some ways has been the way that brands sometimes on the outside to the outside world make these grand promises and then don't have it within them to make good on those promises you know the culture isn't there or 
um, they're, they're just not set up, you know, so they're, they're, they're kind of marketing guys or their, their ad agency team do this amazing job of making grand promises to the world and then they don't really deliver on them. And then there's, I've seen lots of big companies get sort of surprised that people are disappointed in them or, you know, don't get disenchanted. And um, it, so in a way, I think a lot of what we do at our best at Fizzbot Bang is helping helping companies to make the insides match the outsides, you know, the, to, to help that be as, as vibrant um, and full of promises as the marketing historically has been. Um, and sometimes that's through culture work. So kind of diagnostic and understanding culture and values and things like that. Uh, and, and sometimes that's more through creating a learning culture and helping them to have really um, vivid, engaging learning experiences that help people to be at their best. So it's that, that kind of space. Yeah, and the other thing that you're involved in um, or have been for the last sort of couple of years is this thing called the Wise Fool School. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so what's that? Yeah, so that's that's uh, in a way it's a kind. It feels to me like a culmination of years of work, um, because for years I've done various kinds of personal development kind of work, and I've written books and um, and run courses and all sorts of things, and. Um, and Wise Fool School is um, a more, in a way, I think of it as like a platform or a, um, a creative space I get to play in that feels like it brings together lots of different strands of my work from over the years. So that includes embodiment um, and Taoist wisdom and you know, spiritual development and more broad personal development and um, uh, health and well-being and coaching, lots of these different strands that I've done various different things with over the years it feels like they all come together in in what i've come to call wise fool school um which has a kind of obvious obvious external expression of there's an online course that you can sign up for and, and a community that goes with it um but there i also i had actually i just last weekend i would have been running an in-person wise fool school workshop um that i had to postpone um for obvious uh, health-related reasons um, under the current circumstances. But so, Wisefield School is going to be a, this kind of broader thing, um, uh, and and like I say, I see it as a, it's a, just a great. It's a place where lots of different strands of my fascination have come together. And you strike me as someone who is eternally curious and uh, eternally searching for and trying to sort of diagnose and define meaning in things yeah. right so the, so another thing that i've previously known you for is as an interfaith minister which i just found really fascinating yeah um so is that something that you feel like you've always had in you is this kind of fascination curiosity um with what else is out there is that something that you kind of noticed very early on in life yeah for sure yeah i mean i've always been um yeah, super curious, and I've always loved learning and been fascinated with different things. Um, I I came across uh, some writing by Joseph Campbell, who's a famous um, who's famous for having studied folklore, cross culturally studied folklore and mythology, and come up with the idea of the, um, the hero's journey, which some people might have come across. Yeah. Um, and I was fascinated when I was reading an interview with him and he described himself as a generalist. Now, for someone who 
in so, in so many ways seems like such a kind of niche specialist. I found that really fascinating. <laughs> but academically, he's con- he was considered a generalist in his time because he wasn't studying one subject. He was studying anthropology, sociology, uh, myth, uh, myth and folklore, um, and he was studying across all different cultures as widely as he could rather than studying one culture from one part of the world. Um, and And so I've really come to feel aligned with that idea of being a generalist and, and embracing the fact that I'm a, I'm a, a strange kind of generalist where I, I get curi- fascinated in lots of different directions. Yeah. Um, but in some ways it's that, it's that, it's that breadth that is part of what makes me who I am as a person, but also in my work actually is part of what makes me useful <laughs> to people is that sometimes I see connections between different things um, that can enable something really creative to happen or can open a door to a totally different way of thinking about something than you'd, you'd get from someone who is more of a specialist or, or, or a more conventional, um, someone operating more conventionally in the kind of spaces that I work in, whether that's leadership development um, or culture work in organizations or whether that's in personal development and one-to-one coaching or writing books or whatever. Um, I, I, do, I have learned to see the value in the way that I see connections that other people don't see. Even if sometimes it feels a bit uncomfortable, um, to for that, that I don't know how to, I don't always know how to position myself, and I don't, I think other people sometimes don't quite know what to do with me. Yeah, because it's like I suppose from one on the one hand, as you mentioned there, if you're a generalist, if you've got a broad perception of the world, then yeah, that's that's obviously vital, particularly if you're, if you're working with organizations about culture, but just generally you're going to, well, generally, because you're generally, you're going like, you're going to have that greater sense of, uh, how to join the dots up, how to kind of see different patterns and things like that. But I suppose just the word generalist has, it feels like it has a bit of a bad rep as a piece of terminology as well. So yeah. is that something that you have had to sort of battle with personally? It's like the difference between your enthusiasm for that that piece of terminology of generalist and then the world's seeming rejection of the idea of being a generalist in a kind of career sense. Yeah. I don't feel like I've had to battle with it particularly or not in the outside world, more in myself. Uh, I think in, in the, in interfacing with the outside world, it's more been around kind of marketing or selling, selling what I do, especially I used to have my own business. Um, and I'd often get feedback from people. I remember one person who, would bring me in on projects and lo- loved working with me. But I remember her saying, I really love what you do. I just have no idea how to describe it to people. <laughs> um, and, and I think that was partly because I, because I did lots of different things, you know, uh, and, and there were these different strands that, and sometimes my, sometimes, you know, there is, there are some things that I've got greater depth in that I can bring that. And, and, and actually that's what people would come to me for is the depth in one subject. Um, but often what, made me different than someone else or, you know, kind of unique or, or, or helpful was the fact that I had some enough depth to really go somewhere with, with one thing, but I draw these connections out to something else and I'd be able to draw different strands together. So I think that's, it's in, it's in the kind of marketing and being present in the world in that way that I really see that, that I probably have had some struggles. Um, because we live in a world that, in, in many ways wants to put us in boxes um, uh, and where especially if you're dealing with marketing or selling things you're dealing with a often with a relatively short and from the research shortening uh, attention span 
Um, so you've got to get across to people what, what value you're going to offer them really fast. Yeah. And actually if it's, well, it depends and there's lots of different things <laughs> and, and sometimes it's a bit numinous and we, we only discover it by working together and then you go, wow, that was really helpful. Where did that come from? And then you discover that it came from totally not what you asked for. It's a totally other area of expertise or insight. That, that can be hard to make sense of. And it strikes me that the value of that then, like you're, you're just talking about your your colleague there who um, loved working with you but wasn't sure how to describe you, a lot of that comes from trust and relationships, which I guess brings me back to the the interfaith minister yeah. um, hat as well. Yeah. Um, so... It, is that is that something that um, you think has really helped you in business? Is like um, I'm presuming there's a lot of uh, training and a lot of emphasis as an interfaith minister on you know how to build that connection, how to listen, uh, you know, and and generally how to help people through some of those those personal situations. Uh, yeah, I think so certainly one of the strands of study uh, training to be an interfaith minister is spiritual counseling um which interestingly i'm doing more of again it's a, a strand of my work that had gone quieter for a few years because i was just very busy with a full very pretty full-on full-time job and wanting to be present as a father and husband and, uh, in my family um so there just wasn't a lot of space for me to do do the, the things on the side in the way that i have done in in years gone by um and one of the core ideas in spiritual counselling, in many ways it's the core idea, is that you're absolutely perfect exactly as you are. Um, there's nothing wrong with you. So when pe but people come to you for spiritual counselling, when they're feeling to some degree in difficulty or, I mean, to put it, it's a, it's a little strong, but often there the, is the internal experiences is of someone feeling kind of broken. Yeah. Um, in some way, wounded. Um, so... The one of the real core ideas in spiritual counselling is that um, you're absolutely perfect exactly as you are, but sometimes we forget that. So while you've forgotten, I'll just hold on to that for you and I'll keep remembering that. Um, and turning up with people in that spirit, um, holding, holding a, a seeking to hold an awareness for them on their behalf that you, 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 there's nothing you need to do you're absolutely perfect just as you are. It, there is something about that quality of presence, that quality of relationship that can, that I experience as opening doors for people in a really interesting way. And whether that's coaching or whether that's with groups, facilitating groups in learning, um, creating a space of possibility. There's something um, numinous and magical that I really like about creating that space of possibility where it's not that... Um, it's not that there's a problem to be solved or something that needs fixing. It's that there is a possibility of becoming more whole, more connected, more aware and vibrant. That, that's, that's something I find exciting and magical. Whether, and often it's not explicit. Uh, that's just, but that's part of how I turn up, and I think that's part of what people value when I turn up. <laughs> um, what what yeah. do you mean it's not explicit? Um, well, sometimes, you know, I'm just running a, running a workshop on a piece of learning. Um, or I'm doing some coaching that's more business, you know, leadership coaching. So I wouldn't necessarily talk about that yeah. quality of presence or that, that underlying assumption. Um, but there's something about how I turn up when that is, when, because that's part of who I am, 
part of my history and part of who I am, that how I turn up, uh, like I say, can can help others seem see it seems to help others to inhabit a different way of seeing the world. Um, and that creates possibilities that opens doors and that, that can change things. Um, problems get solved without us going after problems. And I think, I suppose what draws a lot of these, uh, various strands of your work together is, uh, this sense of curiosity, wisdom, um, you know, this, this, this kind of search for uh, different truths and stuff. Do you, do you feel like, so are you, are you atheist? Would you describe yourself as atheist or agnostic or like? Definitely not atheist. <laughs> um, and just really clear about that. There's nothing wrong with being atheist. Um, uh, but, but atheism has become so, uh, it's been popularized and, and in places I think it's been weaponized in a way that I, that I would want to be really clear. I don't align with. Yeah. Um, uh, because of, yeah, I've seen th- th- this. I feel like I meet more and more evangelical atheists. Right. Yeah. I meet more evangelical atheists than I meet evangelical Christians, <laughs> and and that seems a little strange to me. Um, when evangelizing is explicitly part of the Christian Christian faith, certainly for some churches. Um. So yeah, and I wouldn't even say I'm agnostic, um, because that's about. I believe in something, but I'm not sure what. Um, uh, I'd uh, so spiritually, I'd say I'm a pluralist, if if we wanted to put terms on it, um, which is about that there are. I think there are many expressions of the divine. Not to sound too, well, or not wanting to sound too too woo woo or out there. That's all right. <laughs> but I, yeah, I'm okay with it. But I, I am a person of faith. Again, that's that's not something I necessarily talk lots about, especially in my day to day work. But it is part of who I am and how I turn up that I have that I'm I am a person of faith. Because I guess the reason I asked is like I'd imagine there's there's you know learnings or you know interesting ideas that you could come across in any religious text. Yes, and it's sort of you know, it feels like you have a choice there to, I mean, you can have a choice and say, I don't believe any of it's true. Mm. Uh, so I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't label myself as an evangelical atheist by any means, but I would <laughs> definitely label myself as an atheist in general. Although technically Richard Dawkins says that he's a, an agnostic, right? Does he? It's like, okay. Yeah. Cause he says that, um, one of the things with science is that science is always still learning the next thing. So, you, so you have to have, even if you think it's a very, very distant, tiny percentage-wise possibility, you have to be open to that being a thing that we might discover right, yeah. in the future. So, so technically, like he says that everybody's agnostic, but <laughs> but, but I would also say that um, even if I don't have a faith there's probably as i read through different you know religious books or or um are exposed more to those ideas it's like it it just feels a shame to just throw all of that out because i don't necessarily believe in that version of god whereas i suppose what you're saying is having a pluralist view is just saying well there might be a divine and it can be expressed through you know, all of these sort of different cultural ways, but it's ultimately about, ultimately about the same thing. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of describing it. Um, I, I guess there's there's a couple of things there for me. What, one is that in some of the traditions that I've studied and explored, um, uh, one of the core ideas is animism, that all things are filled with spirit, filled with divine, whatever label you want to give it. It's, there's a way that I really genuinely don't care what label we put on it. Um, uh, that which is greater than us. So my experience is that there is something greater than us, which is a kind of connective tissue between everything in the universe. Um, and there are lots of people who have explored that in lots of different ways, including some fairly some people with a fairly hardcore scientific background. There's a guy. So one of the areas I've studied in is called dialogue and, and explored in. It's called, called dialogue, which is a, an approach to um, relationships, facilitating relationships and groups. Um, that was established largely by a guy called um, David Bohm, who is a particle physicist by background. And he he was one of the early people who showed that when you split subatomic particles, you can take half of the particle and the two halves of the particle, separate them. And if you spin one half, the other star, half starts spinning in the same direction, even when they're physically separate. Huh. And he talked about, from from that experiment, his explorations in physics, He, the way he described it was um, the implicate order, that there's an implicate order where all things are interconnected. And from the idea of the implicate order, he started to explore how our relationships might tra- with each other might transform if we went in with an understanding of the implicate order and sought to create social environments in which the implicate order, the connectedness, could emerge. That doesn't mean there's not conflict or that you're... Com- in fact, often there's significant conflict that can come into that space. But how you respond and how you create the environment enables the fundamental connectivity to emerge rather than staying focused on the fragmentation or getting stuck in the fragmentation, which is often where we get stuck in arguing our points, in discussion and debate in such a way that we keep ourselves separate rather than seeing what connects us, rather than coming into contact with what connects us. And and that connection, that sense of connection creates other possibilities. We don't have to love each other. Um, we don't even have to like each other necessarily, but there is a possibility for a a neutral sense of fellowship to emerge that enables us to relate differently if we stick with it. And it feels like Western culture and therefore business culture is always much more about the individual and about shunning any ideas of interconnectedness, right? It's like sometimes when you travel to other parts of the world, you kind of you just really get a sense that people are much more in tune with how interconnected they are with others, even just the way people drive or the way people act in shops and all those sort of things. Yes. Whereas, um, you know, the UK, US culture feel, you know, and, and certainly in terms of careers and stuff, it feels like it's very individualistic and like, you know, you're on your path and everybody else is an extra in your film. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, just a, a huge uh, array of uh, different things that you bring to the table. And I guess um, uh, even talking about something like dialogue um, with many CEOs would probably leave them feeling a bit 
alienated or cold or whatever like it like find finding the right way to bring this wisdom in must be like a huge um challenge and then i suppose there are like other things that are just like universal experiences so you wrote a poem called death and life yes um so i'd love to hear more about that and how you know maybe different uh bits of wisdom that you've studied um interact with with death and also is is there something that we can learn from that stuff in terms of corporate culture bringing it back to organizations as well yeah so um I mean, yes, you're right. Um, you have to be. You, we have to be careful as practitioners about how we bring in our bring our expertise into the room. Um, and that's again, that's where I say I'd say it's not always explicit. I don't have to tell you that what we're doing is is dialogue in inverted commas. If if you're wanting me to facilitate an experience, you know, and that could be I've worked with exec boards um, facilitating their dialogues you know their conversations to help them be as effective as possible i've run you know training and development workshops i've done all sorts of things you know in that kind of facilitative coaching educative kind of space um training kind of space with organizations at lots of different levels right, right up to board and right through to graduate programs and sometimes it's useful to bring in the frame of dialogue in terms of being able to distinguish between different qualities of conversation. So you can be conscious about, okay, we're ending up in a discussion right now. I'm not sure how helpful that is. And how do we shift the conversation so we achieve a different quality of conversation? But that's really just about the outcome. Where that the philosophy that that approach is based on, some people will be really interested, but it's not necessarily what I'd bring into the room explicitly. And not because I'm hiding anything, just because I'm not sure it's going to be helpful or feel relevant. Um, and for me, that's that's how I orient, is how can I be helpful? How can I be most helpful in this moment? And sometimes that does mean making things explicit, and sometimes it's it's about how I turn up and the way the ways in which ways I have of facilitating a conversation or a session or a piece of learning such that it is as as helpful as it possibly can be for the people in the room. So I I'll come to death and life specifically in just a moment, but more broadly, I'd say wisdom. You know, most of us, I think, intuitively have a sense that wisdom is a good thing. Yeah. That we, we'd like to be wise as we get older to gain wisdom. And we'd like our leaders, our organizational leaders and social leaders to have wisdom. That, that feels like a, that doesn't feel like a terribly controversial statement. Like that would, that feels like a, like that would be a good thing. Now, what wisdom is, we might have different ideas about. But that kind of general intuitive sense based on a kind of broad background social idea, collective idea of sort of what we think wisdom is. I think that we'd have some fairly common ground in most people and in most organizations. And um, whether you are spiritually inclined or not, I'd say all sorts of texts from texts and traditions and bodies of learning from over thousands of years of human history um, can help us to find our own wisdom. And that's, that's the way around I'd put it. Um, now, and death and life is a poem that's intended to do that in a particular way, in its own way. Um, so that's, that's the connection. But I just want to expand on that idea of, of how 
these things help us find our own wisdom because that's that's a i put that carefully yeah and the reason is that um when i was so was, wisdom is something i'm really fascinated with as you've picked up on and 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 as as anyone who looks at my work and my site and things would would get as well and in trying to work out i so i got i've been fascinated with wisdom for probably to some degree in most of my life but very explicitly in the last 10 years um i've been really trying to get to what is wisdom how does it work uh, how how practically how do we cultivate more of it if it's a, generally a good thing and it would be good to, for leaders to be wiser and for us to have a wiser world how do we do that practically and um one of the early things was i was trying to work out what it is and um and i saw a useful comparison with knowledge traditions and wisdom traditions okay so broadly speaking, knowledge traditions are the ones where what you the way they progress is by knowledge being passed on and the next generation of people taking knowledge further, taking it the next step. So if you look at something like maths or science, um, then if you look at the science books from even 100 years ago, but certainly, you know, let's say 200 years ago, what they were telling you, some of the principles would be the same, but the content of what they're telling you is really quite different. To, what, to science books now yeah because each generation of people have been able to take on the knowledge of the previous generation it's been recorded and passed on and then they've progressed it they've gone further in a fairly linear way linear and progressive if you look at a wisdom text so um the Tao Te Ching for instance which is one of the most thought to be one of the most ancient surviving written texts it's a Chinese spiritual text um, and you compare the core le lessons, the core principles it's exploring, and the core lessons of it with something like The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, written, I don't know, what is it, 15 years ago or something, relatively recent. The core lessons are very, very similar. Or if you compare the writings of Buddha with the writings of Eckhart Tolle, they're pretty similar. They're saying kind of the same thing. You've also got a lot of entrepreneurs uh particularly there's a big sort of movement in silicon valley around stoicism right, right. so again yes. very old ideas but yeah. still exactly is relevant today so i look at that and i go so either the people in the in what i would broadly call the wisdom traditions religion spirituality um philosophy i would i would include the arts as well more broadly but if either the people in the wisdom traditions have been really lazy or stupid um because they haven't progressed right yeah the sciences have work, been working really hard and have really progressed and these guys are saying basically the same stuff so either they were kind of lazy or you know kind of they're, they're, they're everyone in that field has been a bunch of lazy bozos for thousands of years which seems unlikely to me just statistically that seems unlikely um or what they're trying to do when they're writing their books is something very different and in thinking about that, one of the conclusions that I came to, because if, if science progresses generation on generation and wisdom doesn't, then it must be that wisdom is cultivated within the span of a lifetime. Because otherwise you'd see progress generations, you know, one lifetime after another, you'd see the same kind of linear progress. And what I think is happening is that wisdom is based entirely on personal experience. Because it's, fundamentally, it's kind of insight into how life works the underlying principles of how life works, what matters most, how to live a good life. And while someone can tell you that stuff, 
you're not really going to live and breathe it until you've felt it for yourself. You've started to have the experiences that help you to come to your own conclusions. So what the wisdom texts, I think, are doing, whether that's Stoicism or Buddhism or whatever, or Eckhart Tolle as a modern example, or uh, John Katzenbach or whoever, um, is they're trying to point you towards uh, the kinds of experiences and the ways of digesting your experience, making sense of your experience, that will help you to cultivate your own wisdom, which is a di- different purpose. Before we talk about death and life, yes. um, I, I think I, I just feel like I've got to ask you, having obviously having studied a really broad range of texts yes. around wisdom, do you think there are particular things, like I mentioned stoicism there, but are there particular things for you that have helped you with specifically work, life, um, how you define success and happiness, just like are there particular things that have really stood out to you as, as almost becoming like personal mantras or, per, or, or things that are very resonant to your own life? Yes, lots is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> you need to give all, give all the listeners the three practical tips, right? This, this is actually my... Um, my real uh, problem with 20 minute commute friendly podcast formats is yeah. like it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's all like, uh, particularly when I do those kind of interviews as well, it's like they always ask me loads of deep stuff. And then, and then at the end, they always go, what are the three really sort of uh, obvious takeaways? And it's like, well, maybe the first takeaway is just listen to the things I just said. Yeah. <laughs> first anyway, takeaway that's, is, my, that's my bugbear. Pay um, attention. <laughs> pay better attention. Um, yeah. So I, I can give you three. I don't know if they're the right three. Um, Cause I don't, I haven't really thought about it like this before, but there's certainly three that come to the surface really fast. Cool. One is uh, responsibility. Um, another is uh, presence. Um, and another is integrity. So the responsibility piece is about that um, I am unconditionally responsible in the face of whatever life throws at me. Now, that's a pretty painful place to be, actually, because what that says is that it doesn't matter what happens. It's still up to me to do something about it. It doesn't mean I have to take the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, in fact, I can make a choice not to. That's one of the options. But once I'm aware of something, I am responsible in the face of it. I'm not responsible for it. Uh, and in a way, that's a, a gift and a price, right? Because the, the gift is it means I don't have to take the blame for it because someone else might have created the problem uh, or the difficulty or whatever else, the challenge or the opportunity. Um, I, I'm not to blame for it. But just because I'm not to blame for it doesn't mean I don't have to find my own response to it. I am responsible in the face of it. And that lesson is in lots of traditions in lots of different forms. It's in there in it's very strong in Stoicism, that particular one. It's also in very strong in uh, martial arts philosophy, which I've studied quite a lot. Uh, there's versions of that. Um but there's versions of it in um I think in lots of different traditions. Um Certainly, there in the in the Bhagavad Gita in India, and you know, lots of different traditions from all over the world. And there's versions of it in in the the, the traditions of the book, you know, kind of Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Um, and 
that is something that I come back to in myself time and time again. And it's something that I build into pretty much every leadership development program that I've ever been involved in. In some way, that subject has to come up because it, it's both um, a painful reality we have to deal with. You can't kvetch and com- complain and abdicate responsibility. Well, you can, but it's not going to get you anywhere and it's going to create problems for other people. Um, at, so that's the pain of it. But, but it's a pain worth dealing with if you want to be do good things and, and make stuff happen. Um, and the benefit of it is that it's hugely empowering. Regardless of what life throws at you, you have a response. You have the capacity to do something about it. It doesn't mean you're going to fix it. It doesn't mean you're going to you know, end world hunger, but you can do something. And you can make a choice. Uh, there's always a choice to do something. So that's that's the responsibility piece. The... Um, the presence piece is, I have a phrase, it's not very profound, um, but it's something that came to me years ago. Before I'd, I mean, I've since come across it in loads of different traditions, but really before I come across that stuff, it just occurred to me. And the phrase I have in, that is, is my phrase is, you can't leave Spain if you ain't in Spain. <laughs> Which, as I say, not, not very profound. Um, but the truth in it is that... Um, Generally speaking, if you want to ch- if you want something to change, you have to become present first. Often, when people want something to change, they run away from their problems, or their pain, or, or whatever it is that they want to change. They try and leave it behind. But often, by leaving it behind, you perpetuate it. Whereas there's an opportunity if we become fully present in something, which is often what we're trying to avoid. Actually, we're trying to avoid the pain of being fully present in it, and that could be um, grief or emotional pain. It could be an ending. It could be um, a difficult situation or a, di- or a difficult relationship. By becoming fully present in it, whatever it is, you have the opportunity to change it. It link- links very strongly with the responsibility piece, but it's a, it's a different face of it in a way. So if you want to, if you want things to change, you have to be really as present as you possibly can be in them. Um, so that's the that's the presence piece and and the transformative nature of, of presence uh, I'm, I just get more convinced of every day whether that's through meditation or facilitating groups um, or you know looking at conflict or just in my own life or, you know hanging out with my son helping him with his learning you know it's only when I get really present with him in whatever's going on for him in that moment that it becomes possible to move on as long as I'm trying to push him into uh, you know, I may be sick of him complaining. <clears throat> I'm trying to push him back into doing his work. As long as I'm pushing, he's resisting. Yeah. When I get really present with him and really empathize with whatever the struggle is that's coming out as complaint or whatever it's, however it's bubbling to the surface. When I get present with him, and this is something my wife's really wonderful at, when, when we get present with him, then we get then something else happens. We, we get an insight into his world in a way that helps us to understand what's really going on at a deeper level. And usually right after that, he says, come on then, let's get back to it. And he gets himself focused. I don't have to push him anymore. It also feels like when you look that dynamic of if you're looking at a problem with somebody sat side by side next to them, that's a really different scenario to if you're sat opposite them and you know yes. that's that difference between being on the same team yeah. and feeling like you're in opposition right yeah uh, yeah how do we turn and face the problem together and then integrity yeah so that third piece around integrity is about um there's a great writer 
who I, I used to work with a consultancy that he founded and um and I really like his work still. Um called Fred Kaufman, who wrote a book called Conscious Business. Um and he talks about the idea of success beyond success in that um, if your happiness and satisfaction is dependent on external success, so like winning the deal, landing the job, completing the project, whatever it might be, then you're pretty stuffed Yeah. because your, your, your happiness and satisfaction is, um, is not fully in your own control. You're dependent on external circumstances that may or may not come to pass. So your your happiness or satisfaction is going to be like a roller coaster. You might have years where it's going up, but there'll be some point where something doesn't come off. And the odds are, if you've got that attached, if you've attached your happiness to the the external results that strongly, then then the crash is going to be hard when something doesn't come off. So success, the idea of success beyond success is is not to say I'm not interested in any external results. You still chase after things, want to win, you know, achieve. Um, but make sure that you know what really matters to you um, as a person. What are the qualities and values that you not only espouse, but you want to live your life by? Who do you want to be? Because you can always control who you are. You can always be as to the best of your ability. No one's perfect. But you can make choices that are in integrity with what you believe to be right and good. Yeah. And if you- who do you want to be is a really nice way of putting that. I often sort of think about it slightly simplistically as being, you know, fo- focus on the journey, not the destination. Yeah. Um, and success is actually about what you do on each step of that way, rather than a thing that you're chasing a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But like, who do you want to be is a really nice, it's a really nice way of looking at it. Yeah. And if you know who you want to be, you can always be that. Yeah. And win or lose, right? You can still look in the mirror at the end of the day and feel proud. And and for me, and, and that's integrity, I think. That's what integrity is. It's that I know that I am coherent in thought and word and deed. And as long as I have that internal sense of coherence, then that gives me a really solid foundation, regardless of what life throws at me. And again, you know, that's, I think that's in so many traditions. There's versions of that lesson expressed in so many traditions. I mean, it's the goal in a way, it's a version of the golden rule. It's, it's a different way of looking at it. It's, it's more internally oriented rather than externally oriented, but it's the, the golden rule being treat others as you would have them treat you. Um, it's like behave in the world in the way that is coherent with who you want to be. Cool. Love that. And I love the fact that it's like, you know, distilling all of that different wisdom from across the board. Um, I'm sure that's, I mean, you could write, you could literally write a careers book, couldn't you saying <laughs> responsibility, presence, integrity, just sort those three. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, you'll have a good career. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about death and then I want to talk about emails. <laughs> so, okay. like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yes. I, and, and I understand why those two. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> um, so, Death, the book on death, was it was a poem I wrote, um, and I then turned into a kind of illustrated because it's a long form poem. And I turned it into a sort of a little illustrated book, um, and it's it's a really it's a lot of what I've just been describing in a poem about the way that death can inform life. 
So in it's it's particularly prevalent in the martial arts traditions, but it's in other traditions like Stoicism as well. In fact, there's a whole book um, by one of the great Stoics about this. Um, the idea that we, with an awareness of death, you will make the most of life. Yeah. The pro- one of the fundamental problems many people face in their lives is that they live as if they're immortal. They keep putting off to tomorrow all the things that are most important to them and constantly feel frustrated or underwhelmed or, you know, like, like it's not quite what they wanted um, somehow. You know, life is not quite how they want it to be or, you know. And there's a way that uh, a bring heightening an awareness of death when it's done healthily can help us get much clearer about what really matters and, and in all sorts of ways, you know, whether, and that's, that touches on, you know, that integrity piece, you know, if you want to get to the end of your life and feel proud of who you were, it's not because you won that million dollar deal. That might be a cool thing, but it's going to be because you lived your life as the person, as a person that you can feel proud of. If you want to, do the things that are most important to you in life. You have to take full responsibility for for your life and how you behave. And if there's anything that makes us present, it's death. I wonder whether this whole lockdown COVID period that we've just been through, Mm. one of the reasons that some people found that really tough, the idea of not rushing around doing their daily commute and running you know, between offices and all the rest of it. And then in the evenings running to the theater and to dinner with people and all that stuff and all of that being put to one side. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether one of the reasons that's tough for a lot of people, and I'd include myself to a certain degree in this, is that it does force you to just be alone with your own thoughts. And to be alone with your own thoughts often involves you know, confronting death as much as anything else, right? Because it's mm. about existence and presence. And, you know, I just wonder whether that's something that we haven't necessarily, just feels like it hasn't necessarily been um, explored very much as maybe a bit of an opposite to busy, right? So busy is a way to to keep yourself on that treadmill away from uh, contemplating your own mortality. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a really sort of strange, uh, <laughs> um, you know, sort of linkage to make, but, um, well, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a truth in that for sure. I think there's, there's a way that, um, and, and, and in some ways in a really positive and understandable way, right? Yeah. We know we're alive when we're out in the world doing stuff, feeling, feeling vivid and, full of life and busy in a really lovely way. Being busy in a, when it's the right kind of busy can be so wonderful and alivening. Um, and when we don't have that, when we can't do that, there's a way that that, that can feel deadening. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff just in terms of the brain chemistry of that, right? Like if you're running around being busy, being addicted to stress hormones, um, and dopamine absolutely oh yeah and suddenly all of that is kind of gone yeah then no wonder people feel low or you know people have struggled for motivation and all those uh you know sort of things that have been very well documented but yeah 
Well, yeah, and, and you know, so that's you know, I mentioned the kind of good kind of busy. In a way, what you're describing is the kind of negative kind of busy of a bit the the addiction to getting to dopamine and and, and their connection with stress hormones. And but the dopamine can be good, and then just it, it can feel the nice. addiction yeah. to it isn't isn't good. I right? can yeah. still feel great in the moment, but yeah. then when it's the the bad part of, about it is when it's gone. Yes, yeah, yeah and we crash, and and. Yeah, so the the hazard is that when that sudden it has to suddenly stop, like it did, you know, when it's forced to suddenly stop, it doesn't mean those stress hormones leave our system or that addiction is resolved. It just means it's got nowhere to go. So it comes out in these ways where I I feel really anxious and I don't know why. It's like, well, because you're used to feeling anxious, but normally you channel that into being productive. Yeah. Um, but today you can't, and so you you just have to sit with the discomfort of it, and that's hard. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, the, the upside of, if you, if you practice any kind of meditation over an extended period of time is you will have sat with discomfort at some point, you know, if that's just physical discomfort sitting still when you don't want to, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, or when some part you doesn't want to, um, it gives you a capacity to sit with discomfort, um, if nothing else, uh, which can be a really useful life skill. Um, let's segue from there into email then yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> email. talking about sitting with discomfort let's talk yeah. about email. <laughs> um, so one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is that you do this you you were doing it like five days a week and i think now it's three days a week but just uh very regular uh emails going out on your mailing list um sort of covering all of these um various different topics of wisdom so uh, I think you said before we start recording, you're on you 494. Is that right? I think so. I think that was today's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell me why you started that up, and also I'm just really curious. Being, I think six weeks into my own email mailing list, um, I was just really curious by the idea of doing a five day a week. Yeah. Um, email and why anyone would. Uh, set that as the target for themselves i was just like wow that's incredible yeah um so yeah just uh, tell us about that that journey yes it started off i got the inspiration from a friend my friend pearl bates who's a wonderful artist of doing this daily email um she was doing it for a little while uh uh, and 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 i really liked it i actually i I thought it would be too much i signed up for it because she's a friend and i wanted to support it and i was kind of curious and i thought it would get too much Actually, I really enjoyed the little notes every day. It was, it was just five minutes that, that the days I, I didn't read it every day and that was okay too. But the days I did, it was five minutes at the start of my day that felt like it set me up in a different and rather lovely way for my day. So I'd seen someone do it in a way that I had seen other people doing it, you know, just in a much more kind of hairy handed marketing kind of way. And I, I was like, meh, don't want to do that. But um, just offering this little creative window felt like a real gift. Yeah, I was inspired by that. Uh, and I was also, it was a combination of, um, I wasn't, I'm, I love writing and I'm a writer. I consider myself a writer in some ways, almost more than anything else. Although there's lots of things I do and, and have deep, ex- deep experience in and I do lots of, but I love writing. And I didn't have a writing practice. I was busy in my day job uh, and I wasn't finding time to write. So I wanted to have a, a writing a light and and there's a way that i go if i'm not writing am i am am i a writer for me um it's so much about being in the practice so i wanted a writing practice that was something i've been thinking about and trying to work out how to build it into my life um and i also i have a long history of 
creating orphan book babies um, where I kind of write a book and then kick it out into the into the wide world and then almost <laughs> forget about it. And they, you know, I like to think that they kind of go feral out there in the world of the internet. And then um, some of them do thrive and some of them don't. Um, That's the thing with um, my world is I think there are people who consider themselves writers. Right. And then they speak in order to try and promote the book that they've written. Yeah. And then there are people who consider themselves speakers and they write a book because that helps them with their speaking. <laughs> yeah. And you could probably count on one hand the people who are genuinely really good at both. Right. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I put myself much more in the, like you, I'd, you know, be in the, I'd much be much happier just writing and writing and never having to promote. And, you know, much as I really enjoy speaking and I love the interaction of it. Um, yeah. It, I'm much more at that end of the spectrum. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And I love facilitation and working with groups and things. I enjoy speaking too, but, um, and in many ways, that's more of my background because I trained originally as an actor and I, I do lots of facilitation work. That's That's been my kind of my bread and butter for a lot of years now. But but I, there's a way that I love writing. And um, yeah, and like I say, I, I'd been I'd spent felt like years kind of being rubbish at marketing or promoting or, you know, really doing anything to support the book once it was a book. Yeah. Um, and. I also wanted to get more conscious about that and find some, find some things to do that would help me to promote rather than, rather than just getting down and writing another book, which was my habit is I'd think, ah, I want, I need to promote my work. I'll write another book and then not promote it. Um, I wanted to do something that maybe might be more of a kind of marketing channel in a way. Um, but to do that in a way that was about building relationships, um, not about selling really. Um, but about building relationships and, um, so I, th- I thought if, you know, if I started an email, sending an email every day, that would, I, if I had to sit down and write, if it would kind of force me through public commitment to writing every, uh, every day, <laughs> um, or writing really regularly. Um, and it might create a, create a community of people who are invested in my work. And, you know, when I was ready to put another book out or whatever, that they might, there might be a bunch of people who like what I do and it's therefore feels like a kind of natural thing to just go, Oh yeah, that's cool. He's putting something out. I'd like some of that. And, and, and that, and one of the things I found fascinating about it once I started doing it is that it felt more like ministry than pretty much anything else I've ever done as an interfaith wow, minister. Okay. Um, because, as an interfaith minister, you know, you tend to come into people's lives for specific events, you know, that people would ask me to do a wedding for them or a funeral or a baby blessing or something. Or they'd come and see me for a period of time as a spiritual counsellor. But it's not like being a kind of um, a Church of England minister with a, with a parish, you know, where there's a whole You're not running people. a sermon every Sunday. No, exactly. No. So you don't have that regularity of contact. So writing these emails, and I'd get people writing back to me quite frequently, much more than I expected to, saying, oh, thank you, that one really landed for me, or that one really meant something to me today. Or, And those messages were just so lovely. And it felt so much like there was a community of people. That's part of why I started Wise Fall School, actually, was because I was like, if only these people could speak to each other, I think they'd really like each other. Yes. I'm finding all of that same stuff even after five yeah. or six weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's partly what part of why I wanted to sort of shape a community rather than just it just be relation them having a relationship with me. So yeah, it was really fascinating. It has been a really fascinating experience, and I continue to really enjoy it. And I, of course, I have some days where I'm 
more excited about it and I'm really like, oh yeah, let's ride today. And there's other days and I'm like, oh God, I've got to write one today. <laughs> do you write them every day or do you batch them up? Like what's your, what's the sort of productivity, uh, creativity practice around it? I started off with doing a batch uh, when I first started, but I quite quickly found that hard to sustain and start, ended up just writing them each day, like getting up a bit earlier and, and making sure I had 20 to 30 minutes to, to write. Yeah. Um, and and then got really fluid at it, you know, because at first it, it would take me longer than that. You know, it felt like a bit, a bit of a burden, but I quite quickly got into a flow where I could just like go and find a quote that inspired me. I often start, use a quote as a starting point, or it would just be something I've been thinking about and I'd share that idea or, um, yeah, and I just got into a flow with it and I, I just sit down and that, and that was, and actually I prefer that in many ways because that's what makes it a practice. Yeah. It felt like if I was yeah. batching them up, yeah, it'll, it'll be okay, but it's the fact that I just keep coming back and sitting down and keep coming back and sitting down that really make, fit, makes it feel like an alive practice to me. I have a poster note on my desk that just says, writers write. <laughs> and I do think it's one of those things that it is a muscle and it is a practice. And it's like, if you, if you find yourself out of that for a period of time as someone who makes a living from, from being a writer or identifies themselves as a writer, then you know, it's just harder to get back in, isn't it? So yeah, having that as an everyday thing, I think is really powerful. Is there anything you've learned in terms of just thinking about uh, people who don't necessarily write, but have to do things regularly, but get stuck with them, whether that's creative practices or just work practices. Is there anything that you found on the days where you didn't necessarily have anything to say or, you weren't sure where to start or whatever, or were just feeling that sort of procrastination brain kicking in. Anything that you found really helps you to to sort of break out of the more negative uh, sort of cycles and uh, and actually create something. Yeah, um, two things come to mind. One is um, create ways to um, to let yourself off the hook some days. So at the beginning for me, that meant having a bunch of them in reserve. So that if I just had a really, really, really stuck day, I could just copy and paste from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and after I'd done about, after I'd done a year of them, which was about 250, I gave myself permission to sometimes like reuse old ones, you know, like go and find a really good one and, and repost it. And if, if the last time I wrote, you know, the, the time I first wrote that was like six months or a year ago, then it's no one's going to complain about that if they even notice <laughs> even people who have been on the on the mailing list the whole time yeah so um it felt like that was okay and, and again you know i'd get different people writing back to me saying oh that one i really love that one so you know it feels like it still serves them and it just means that if i'm if i'm rushed or having a tough day or whatever else it just takes the pressure off so i think having a pressure release valve is good not just forcing yourself forwards i think it just feels healthier yeah, because otherwise it starts to become, you know, uh, like the discipline can become almost a bit toxic. Like if yeah. you're sort of flogging yourself too much, exactly. Or, um, you know, it can it can really have sort of negative um, effects on you. But yeah, giving yourself those those safety nets, parachutes, whatever you want to call it, I think is really important. Yeah, I love the thing about reusing a post as well. I was thinking about this recently. How no one no one uh, criticizes let's say the church of England for <laughs> doing Christmas again on yeah. the 25th of December every year or like, Oh, it's Easter again. Are you still banging on about Easter? But like, I feel like in business, um, we have this idea that 
it, things are only noteworthy if they're new. Right? Yeah. Like, it's like they only want to hear about your new book or your new idea. And it's like actually old, as we've talked about, old ideas yeah. are pretty good. <laughs> you know? and, there's some, and there's something quite useful about them being in a certain cycle or you know, at certain times of the year, like Harvest Festival is always one of the ones that springs to me and like, you know, winter solstice, summer solstice, they're particular yeah. uh, moments that are really uh, interesting to, to sort of keep coming back to and, and, and kind of tracking your life through, you know, where were you every Christmas or every summer solstice or whatever, you know, I just think they're, um, yeah, we should, we should get more comfortable with just the general idea of um, reusing or, or kind of cycles of knowledge and wisdom. I think it's, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we finish, uh, I haven't talked to you about actually how we first met, which, which was around embodiment. Yes. Um, and again, this feels like, uh, uh, going from, uh, email <laughs> to, <laughs> to going to the body, uh, feels like a really nice, um, sort of fun little juxtaposition. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, embodiment just as an area, might be which I just think has so many powerful, um, you know, applications in leadership and also just in professional life generally. So, what is embodiment, and um, what are some of the things that people can uh, think about there? If that's not too big a final question, <laughs> yeah, I'll see if I can really nutshell it. Um, so, uh, so embodiment is the exploration of the body as a lived experience rather than an object. So to a fair degree, the cultural norm, and there are various factors that reinforce this, is to treat our body as an object. Like it's, it's a, I'm semi-famous on the internet for having said the body is a brain taxi or, or, or that that's how we treat it. You yeah. know? Or that it shouldn't be a taxi for the brain, uh, you know, kind of vehicle to get your brain to meetings. But, and yet that's how many of us, behave towards it and even people who are more body oriented it's often about fitness so it's like making it a machine that's as efficient as possible or it's about uh beauty so it's making it an object that's as beautiful as possible aesthetically pleasing as possible which are still objectifications they're still not fully lived relationships with our body they were doing something to our body i mean that's really evident if you look at gym culture and advertising yeah there's a whole series of ads for a big kind of trendy gym up in London that I remember seeing and being kind of horrified by those. Um, they were, they were all basically the kind of themes were brutalizing your body and, and that's the measure of a good, a good workout. Um, and so the, there's various factors, you know, including advertising and all sorts of cultural stuff that will tend to nudge us towards objectifying ourselves rather than fully inhabiting the subjective experience of self uh, and and the body as part of that and and um or as, as the foundation of that really so embodiment as a field can go from that kind of quite deep psychological and, and sociological kind of exploration of our relationship with ourselves right through to just really nuts and bolts practical stuff about understanding the physiology of stress for instance and how to counteract stress in the body really effectively and really fast so they were kind of much more pragmatic nuts and bolts applications which has done some fascinating stuff including you know like pain relief all kinds of things that you can do um you really just working with kind of how we organize ourselves in our body how we breathe and how we 
um, and, and how we shift our awareness within that, within our bodied experience right through to like i say kind of quite deep sociological questions so psychological and sociological questions about who we are um yeah so that's kind of that's the that's the field um yeah does that help is that have i yeah i i was gonna maybe just add to that my own experience was that which is that a few years ago i did uh, a couple of courses around embodiment one of the one of the things that was really interesting for me was you can take different, I guess, kind of different archetypes of of um, of how people are in their bodies, and uh, by using um, some of those different archetypes, you can kind of you can kind of uh, well, by the nature of it, you can embody the kind of changes that you want to make, right? So, yes. if you want to be much more focused on marketing that can be a really physical uh, embodied experience as well as, okay, I need to do some projects around getting a mailing list going or whatever. Right. Um, or if you want to be a better listener or more inquisitive, or there are, there are things that you can do that the physiology of which will really aid um, any other changes that you want to bring about. So I just think it's a really fascinating um, uh, area in general. Yes. Um are there particular resources that you think are really good places for people to go around that? Cause I feel like it's, uh, in some ways it's like a whole nother, um, episode. Isn't yeah. It, actually? Yes. But like, but, uh, where, where can people find out more about that? Um, just so that we can do it justice here. There, there are books and videos and various different teachers in the field. Um, so, uh, a friend of mine, Rachel Blackman does some really lovely work with this more in the kind of therapeutic, um, space and and she's also a, a theater maker so she kind of does stuff around performance as well um some of the founders of the field in many ways are people like richard strozy hector and wendy palmer um in the us so you can kind of go and explore their stuff um and there's this whole like um i suppose the the us you know sort of like so there are certain cities in the u.s that seem to be really up on this kind of stuff right like yeah. Boulder, colorado and austin texas and those kind of places like yeah just feels like there's whole communities of people that are really in tune with this stuff in a way that maybe a lot of the rest of western society is not yeah yeah for sure yeah and and in this country you know brighton has for a long time had a big kind of embodiment community and um and there's yeah there, there's really i'd say there's the, the, the real way to get a feel for it is to go and en- engage in some practices more than anything else because that's what it, where it lives you know is, is in lived experience um, in the body actually a, fr- a friend who you might know as well Liz Peters wrote a book um, that, uh, called Own It which is about um, uh, public speaking and kind of being being your best in the spotlight yeah but actually has loads of great embodiment stuff in there Liz Peters actually has been on the podcast before. Oh, as well. awesome. Um, awesome. Yeah. And, um, I, I did a little endorsement thing for her book as well, which is really great. Yeah. Um, in fact, we, I maybe should get Liz back on cause I had her on quite a while before she did that book. Ah. So it might be worth getting her on to, to talk about that book. Cause, um, yeah, there's just some really useful, practical little nuggets there from someone who has obviously been comfortable as a, an improviser on, uh, on stages at Edinburgh and everywhere else, uh, you know, literally just using her body in the moment to create, um, you know, entertainment for people. Do you know what I mean? So it's, um, 
yeah, she's got she's got a lot of useful stuff to say there. Um, we better wrap up because we're uh, we're uh, one hour and twelve, which is uh, <laughs> which is long. But I, I kind of feel like I could have um, uh, talked to your data for this. But uh, just as we finish up, like, do you want to just let people know where they can find out more about your work and uh, anything that you want to? particularly draw people's attention towards yeah sure so if you're interested in my corporate work so kind of leadership and culture and that kind of thing then um fizzpopbang.co.uk is where you can find me and the fizzpopbang team um my personal website is francisbriars.com and that's where wise fool school is and also i'm developing um i'm in the process of writing a book but i'm also developing some uh, online resources for wisdom more broadly so if you want to help people to cultivate wisdom or if you want to put wisdom into learning and development programs and understand how to do that um then i'm developing some resources there around around wisdom particularly and there's also my books there too um the book that's most popular is i did my own version of the tao te ching the, the chinese spiritual text that i mentioned before a kind of modern transliteration, kind of putting it into contemporary language. And you can find that. It's called My Tao Te Ching, A Fool's Guide to Effing the Ineffable. Um, and that's uh, so that's out there. And, and there's others, you know, like Death and Life that you mentioned, which is just a poem in a book, really. But yeah, come, come and check out my site. Uh, say hello. Um, and if you wanted to sign up for my newsletter, that's on my site as well. It's called Everyday Magic. Um, nice. Um, well, I think this has probably been the wisest episode of Beyond Busy that we've done. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just want to say uh, thanks again and yeah. uh, enjoy the rest of your day. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Francis. Thanks also to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. Uh, find out more about productivity training and coaching at thinkproductive.com. And as I mentioned at the beginning, my new personal program, Six Weeks to Ninja, and we're launching in November. So if you're interested in working with me, working on your productivity, just go to graymalcott.com and you'll find out more information there. Um, you can access the show notes for this show and uh, all the previous episodes at getbeyondbusy.com. And thanks also to Mark Stedman and Podient, my producer and platform for this show. We'll be back next week. We've just gone weekly. Uh, really um, happy to say that we've gone from a fortnightly podcast to a weekly one. And uh, people seem to be liking it. The numbers are going up. So that's good. And um, I'd love you to just share this and subscribe and help us with that mission of bringing this stuff to more people so um, if you've enjoyed this episode share it with your friends put it in whatsapp subscribe get, leave me a review and a like and all that stuff that we know helps and uh, let's get us up the algorithms and up the charts and all that stuff so until next week take care bye for now